Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited for today's show because we're going to do something I've wanted to do for a long time. We're going to talk about radiation safety in the operating room and the various suites where we practice. And I've got with me the person who knows all about this. I have Dr. Mahesh. Dr. Mahesh is a professor in the Department of Radiology here. He's also a professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology, and he's a medical physicist here at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's incredibly well decorated for all that he's done. He's the president-elect of the American Association of Physicists in Medicine. That's the AAPM. And he's a board member of the American College of Radiology. He is going to really help us to understand what we need to know about this. Dr. Mahesh, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you, have this conversation. I consider this is a very important one because a lot of the time, uh, medical physicists, we are trying to reach uh, out and share this knowledge, but it's, this is the right way, and I consider this a very fortunate to have this opportunity. Let me tell you briefly about myself. Please. Um, thanks for the wonderful introduction. Um, I am basically a qualified medical physicist with a board certified in diagnostic imaging physics. <laughs> My area of interest in medical physics means it takes over the area of imaging science and also radiation safety and also MR safety and so forth. Um, Fundamentally, my interest has been with radiation and especially with the uh, protection of the staff and also patients. And I also advocate for communicating openly with the patient and trying to help them understand some of the questions they have. I think we're going to discuss it later. Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with various professional societies. And um, in addition, I've also been um, uh, involved with a number of local and national and international organizations. Just to name it, two of them is, uh, there is one association, uh, one organization called NCRP, National Council of Radiation Protection Measurement. This is a body, it's a U.S., uh, it's it's an advisory body um, uh, to the U.S. Congress, and they have 100 elected members who put out reports on various radiation protections issues and radiation applied to U.S. population, and one of them is uh, how to manage risk in fluoroscopy was uh, recently done. In addition, similarly, on an international scale, there is what is called as International Com- Commission on uh, Radiation Protection, and that's the one which makes, uh, which comes out with recommendation about dose limit, radiation limit, and so forth. That is applied globally, but that automatically translates to a lot of the laws and everything. I think I'm going to touch basis on that one when we talk later on the dose limit. And I am now elected member to the committee of the ICRP. So I feel fortunate to have a, a play a role in multiple organizations so, so that um, the information can be transmitted uni- uniformly and the correct information shared with the uh, um, public and the staff and um, physicians. Great. Perfect. It's so important. And I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. 
So let's start just by talking about radiation in general. My understanding is there's direct radiation and scatter radiation, at least on a very basic level. Tell me the difference between those. So the way I look at it is uh, when I teach the, our um, medical physics, radiation protection, everything, imagine any X-ray room, whether it's an X-ray room or a CT or an interventional um, fluoroscopy room, any of them, there are three sources of radiation. One is called the direct radiation. That is called when the X-ray tube is turned on and what it comes out of the X-ray tube is called direct radiation. And that is well collimated in the sense it does not spread all over the place. It is well focused to the area of the imaging area. And that is tested annually by the medical physicist to make sure the machine operates in that way. That's direct radiation. The second and the third one is, the second one is called the secondary radiation, also called a scatter radiation. The scatter radiation is the one which has a multiple property by itself. As the x-rays pass through the body or a material, some of it, it gets absorbed, some of it gets scattered. And that scatter spreads all in direction. And that is why it is required for us to wear protective or equipment or protective aprons and other things when you are working around the radiation. And that's called scatter radiation. And scatter radiation has a property by itself. It varies on the body size, patient size, how large is the primary field, and number of other factors. The third one is called the leakage radiation. And that is actually very small, but even though the X-ray tube is well housed, there is certain amount of leakage radiation. However, if one takes precautions to protect themselves from scatter radiation, the leakage radiation is automatically taken care. So the main thing to worry is the direct exposure, which is the coming in the path of the X-ray beam. And the second one is the scatter radiation. Generally, if you are working in a room with a patient, um, uh, you should not be so much worried about the direct radiation because you are not in the path of the beam. On the other hand, you have to, one has to worry about the scatter radiation uh, coming around the patient, and that's what the scatter radiation is all about. Great. All right. Thank you for breaking that down. Now, I got some x-rays a few months ago, and I was waiting for them to drape the lead over me, um, uh, kind of all the parts. I think it was a knee x-ray, and they were, you know, and they didn't do it. And I thought they had just forgotten. And then I asked, and they said, oh, no, we don't do that anymore. So tell me a little bit about that. Why are we not covering people anymore? So what happened is historically, early 50s and 60s, there was an understanding that um, gonads are very um, very sensitive to radiation that can cause mutations and so forth. So the uh, understanding was to cover the gonadal region when you do some type of an X-ray. And that become like a conventionally, that becomes so inherently um, taught in the schools and everybody, even now they are w working. But uh, there are a number of studies coming out showing that, especially as the technology has changed uh, with automatic exposure control and so forth, the X-rays can or the the X-rays can automatically deliver more dose if the path sees more thickness, such as the apron. So what happened is like 2019, um, AAPM, American Association of Physicists of Medicine, took a position statement. Uh, of telling that there is there is uh, there is no use on utilizing gonadal shielding when taking an X-ray on the patients. Nothing to do with the staff around. So we came out with a position statement. I was partly involved with that when I was in the serving on the board, and American College of Radiology uh, immediately uh, endorsed it, and many other societies endorsed it. However, to implement in the in the real clinical situation, taking a long time. Why did we do that? Because what happened is like. Typically, we place the gonadal on pediatric patient. Um, and it has been shown that sometimes the placement can go wrong, thereby you can pretty much repeat the x-rays. 
or sometime especially young females the ovaries are located all over the place it's not in one place so it's actually it's a false comfort the third one the current technology what does it is like it automatically senses what's thickness in the path of the beam and adjust the radiation level so if the gonadal shielding is in the path of the beam x-rays tube will tell like okay there is more thickness it will deliver more dose all these things plus these not positioning properly can create artifact so those are the reason why this was awarded for example for example if you are doing a knee x-rays the knee area is so small therefore the scatter radiation coming out is so small there is no need for any of these things however historically we were doing so now that's one of the reason why we are slowly um thing and still we are we are struggling with uh, implementing this changing policy because it is been in inbred with the technologies that the use of gonadal shielding is very critical we are slowly removing it the second part is like lot of the time when you go to dentist you put a lead shield we are also working with the dental societies to to bring to the notice that there is no need however um lot of the time patient feel very psychologically comfortable when they have something on the lead even there we are, the amount of scatter radiation reaching to thyroid anything very small uh, however that has been a, a historical use it will go more take a longer time but at hopkins i think now there is a policy that we are slowly educating i'm um, bringing this information that there is no need to and we are not, that's one of the reason why we are not using the apron great well you know i love that this is such an, a great example of something that was done for a very long time probably only because it had always been done that was not actually evidence based right it doesn't need to be done so i'm glad we finally uh, embraced the change and in fact um, uh, all the technology school that teaches in school so that's another thing we are trying to uh, change that whole in the curriculum second thing is state regulation had uh, these things now we are working with the state regulators to change that luckily fda already changed the regulation that they don't need to do these things but still it is taking much longer than um it's supposed to be but it's slowly it needs education because we know patients can be concerned like for example when you had this question in your mind look at a mother coming with a small baby he or she will have the question but how do we educate the properly convey them correctly is the very important otherwise they will think that we are doing a bad medicine that's where right. the whole thing yep totally agree so for anesthesia providers we're often in the or where there may be an ortho case and they're taking some x-rays sometimes there are even fluoros being done sometimes we're in the cath lab or in the neuro uh, interventional radiology suite where they're using fluoro you know frequently or throughout the whole case so obviously that's different than being a patient getting a plain film taken so for us we obviously need to wear some protective equipment what do you recommend people wear so first of all um anybody working around the radiation environment no matter how 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 little time they spend they need to wear lead apron and that is required by regulation regulation requires um anybody in the radiation environment to wear a protective apron that typically is there are lead apron it's about 0.25 to 0.5 mm thick and it has to be worn all the way from uh, upper chest and lower chest we'll we'll talk about some of the variations sometime Uh, so anesthesiologists if they are there um in in the room they are supposed to wear the badge wear the apron plus in the hospital and the regulation requires us these anybody working in the radiation area called the radiation worker had to be monitored by using a radiation badge so that any uncovered portion is does not get any accidental two things there is also like for example at hopkins most of our room have mobile red barrier 
which can be positioned wherever you want. It's a lead lead equivalent uh, glass material. And I like it very much because that can be positioned and most of the operating room anesthesiologist uses it. They stand, sit behind it. Even then we require them to wear the apron. So doesn't matter um, whether they are behind the shield and that mobile barrier, it's still advised to wear. That is required by regulation. There was some sort of question when the when we put out the statement that we don't no longer need gonadal shielding for the patient. Someone asked me like, then if you do, if you're not requiring for the patient, why should I wear the apron? There are, the answer is two things. One is patient we are not requiring because they are also getting the direct benefit of the study, whereas you are not getting direct benefit of the study. Plus you are only working around it. Therefore, you have to protect yourself from scatter radiation, and that's why the apron is required. State. State laws and also national laws are very strict. They have to be worn, and the badge has to be worn so that we can monitor this uh, like any scan, accidental exposure. Right. And where is that radiation badge supposed to go? Under the lead or over it? So, in the U.S., the regulation requires us to wear the badge outside the apron, around the collar region, so that uh, because the apron usually covers seventy-five percent of the body, the remaining portion of the body is what is extract. Okay. In Europe, on the other hand, where the limit is limit, there they advise to put the apron underneath the apron. That's one thing. In the U.S., we have to wear it outside the apron, and there is a limitation. It is varies from state to state. In the state of Maryland, it's mo- they monitor us. And the second thing is, if a worker declares she is pregnant, moment she declares pregnant, only after she declares pregnant, the employers are obligated to provide a second batch, and we do the provide that, and that is where underneath the apron, near the waist, is almost like it's called a fetal dose monitor. And there are limits on these things, how much these beds can reach up to. And that's again monitored by the Radiation Safety Office. And best way to monitor this is to actually properly wear it and return it in a timely fashion so you get the answer. Yep, that makes sense. Okay, so the one that everybody gets, that goes outside the apron. Yes. If you are pregnant and you want a fetal dose of monitor, that goes under your leg. Whether you want it or not, the moment you declare, the person declares she is pregnant, the institution is supposed to track it. Whether you like it or not, they have to. The institutions cannot simply go and ask whether you are pregnant. Even though sometimes right. uh, they may not disclose it, so they have, it's a privacy issue. So it's left until they declare. Once they say they are pregnant, the employers automatically had to monitor the fetal dose monitor. Okay, gotcha. And then that goes under the apron. apron. Yes. Okay. Now, for pregnant women, is the recommendation of what they should wear for protection any different than for non-pregnant people? No. The difference is the same. There is no difference between what they should wear. In fact, I have noticed multiple times, and I have dis- discouraged the, some of the nurses or some fellows trying to wear an extra like a garter belt like a lead belt like you know the one you see in a WWF fighting yes, so yes, they wear put on this lead they are, they are sold they put on in addition to the apron and I tell them there is no need to strain your body on the other end look at your badge reading for the previous three months and see whether, whether you are getting any radiation majority of the nurses majority of the ancillary persons working hardly get any scatter radiation because we have the data the people who get the maximum scatter radiation is the fellows working in the cath lab or in the interventional lab where they work very closely. They do get, even them um, in the past 20 years have seen their badge reading coming down because the technology is improving. The technology as such is requiring lesser radiation to produce the same image quality. So all those things is very critical. So there is no need to wear an extra one. Simply wear it and and you can actually uh, uh, testify yourself by looking at the data. That's the okay. best way. 
So no need for thicker lead or double lead or anything. It's fine to stick with the normal. On the other end, these days, there are lead material coming with a lightweight material. And somebody, if it is heavily bothers them to wear this lead weight, which is very heavy, they can purchase a lead equivalent lightweight apron. And that's almost one-sixth the weight of it. In fact, I use it routinely for my practices when I'm doing. It is much less trainer on the body. And I recommend fellows or uh, new fellows, if they are interested, they should get it done for the lightweight because as long as they're equivalently same, they're fine. Great. Okay. Now, for pregnant people, again, we said they can wear the same thing. And we then th- – is it safe to then conclude that it is safe for pregnant people to be in these same procedures even if they're a cath lab resident or an IR resident, they're in there every day, that's still safe. So the point here is like that is a common question we get. Um, as, as, as mentioned, a pregnant worker's dose limit is one-tenth the dose limit as the normal adult's one. So if you're, uh, if you're a general radiation worker, you, are give, you are, have a limit up to 50 millisievert in a, in a year, January to December. The pregnant worker gets 5 millisievert as the limit. So there itself there is a protection in range. In addition, if we are protecting all these using, there is nothing to be worried about working around the radiation even when you are pregnant. We have fellows who are working even on the eighth month with a full belly, but still able to work it, and still their radiation badges were, or had, did not have any scare. Again, it has to be monitored. But I also encourage a lot of the time, if anybody become pregnant or want to be pregnant, if they have a question about radiation, to reach out to the qualified people to get the answer. And here at Hopkins, I volunteer myself to have a consultation with anybody so that I don't want anybody to work with a worry in the back of the mind because that it can be a lot more dangerous than the radiation. I would rather encourage them to come and ask. It doesn't matter. If any question is not stupid, especially with radiation, to get it resolved and then work in environment. So the bottom line is like as long as you are doing all the radiation protection principle, one should not worry whether you're pregnant or not pregnant to work around the radiation environment. Great. All right. That's really important to know. Now, when you say five millisieverts is the limit for a pregnant person, is that for the fetal monitor or for the for the monitor outside the leg? Everything is kind of the five. It's, it's, it's the outside. Out, fetal monitor will not even get anything. Yep. See, it's, the reason is like they want to differentiate so that the employer will give an additional protection. Move around them. If there is too much, they can move around. So five millisievert is the total, the, the top one or any, either one of them. So the five millisievert in the whole nine-month gestation. And in any one month, it should not be more than 0.5 millisievert. That's another limit with the radiation protection monitors so that if that is limit exists, they have to space out. So that is there. But as long as these protections are done, I have not seen any time we... Uh, asking the pregnant physician to move out and not do the procedure. Nobody has been discouraged. But on the other hand, we get a lot of the medical students worried to come into radiation thinking that, oh my God, I need to have a baby. and run. That again is a uh, ill-conceived myth and wrong. And in fact, these days in medical field, it doesn't matter whether you're in radiology or radiation oncology. Anywhere else also there is radiation because we have uh, uh, surgery, everything. So understanding the facts is very critical. Yeah. That's uh, so important. I agree. And I think there's so much, like you said, just so much misconception around this. Yeah. So, all right. So we, it's safe. Uh, you want to be monitored. But even in our IR fellows who are around it all day, you haven't seen a, a pregnant person have to stop because they get above the, the five millisievert. No. We, as of, until now, I've been, I was a chief physicist for 29 years throughout, which I was to do all this monitoring. And I have not seen any time 
um, somebody exceeding these five uh, numbers. Okay. Well, that's great to know. All right. So, you know, if a provider decided, listen, I heard Dr. Mahesh and he said I could get this lightweight stuff, so I bought my own. How can they be sure that it's working? How can they be sure it's a good quality? So one of the requirements of the Joint Commission is these aprons are tested annually. Uh, actually, the technologists do, do do the testing and keep it in their in the records because sometimes the tech, uh, wear and tear can rupture and open up. That's one way. Second way is like they they can have the specification of the apron material testified by the manufacturer. What is the lead equivalent? And then they can put side by side on a fluoroscopy machine and see how the penetration is. That's another way to see also. Very cool. Okay. Now, when you say you should be tested annually, is it the obligation of a workplace like the hospital to test everybody's lead annually? Yeah, it's 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 the it's the general it's the uh, obligation of the workers. So basically, the technologists have their own way of testing on a routine basis, other to say the wear and tear, and sometimes they just do a fluoro on this one one day in the evening, weekends or something. They use all the lead material, run it on the fluoro machine to see. There are new new fancier way to test also. Now we can put it on the table of a CT scan and do a scout scan to see really any penetration. And typically it's not. And that's also another reason why we advise the user to hang the apron in a proper way rather than throw on the ground crumpled up. And then we also advise people not to leave their radiation badge in the apron. Because accidentally somebody took your apron and fluoro this one and your badge reading is exorbitantly high, you don't want to lose your practice time because so that is why it's an individual responsibility we are cultivating. The badge, the aprons has to be hung so that it's not crumpled because this lead material right. can crumple and becomes very. On the other hand, hang it and use it properly is a good thing. It's also good for the infection control and all those things. But it is done annually and Joint Commission often tests, they ask for the reports of how the apron is tested and so forth. Okay. So if a provider said to themselves, wow, it's been three years, I've had this lead, I've never gotten it tested. What would they do? They'd go to their... They should, yeah, they should ask to their hospital managers or technologists to see, or show me, is, is anybody testing my apron? And usually they should have records of it. Okay. And that's the best way. The administrators or the managers in that area is, should be the one not responsible. They can contact the radiation safety office if they cannot do. The radiation safety office should be able to help them out. Great. So I had a listener write in and say that they had a question. They said they noticed that the orthopedic surgeons at their hospital only wear the apron around the waist and the thyroid shield, but no vest. Is that something you've heard about? I have heard about it, and I I cannot believe somebody is doing that. And I unfortunately, that spreads around in the practice. Even at Hopkins, somebody was doing it, and uh, technologists could not call them out. So they came to me, and I, I cannot imagine... And jokingly, what I said now is, he or she doesn't know. The gonads are considered no longer the most sensitive organ in our body. That has been degraded. The other, the breast tissue and the lung tissues are more sensitive. So whoever this person is trying to wear underneath, is actually doing a false stuff. Second is, he's viola- he or she is violating the regulation. Regulation, if the regulators catch them, that hospital can be penalized. It. First of all, if you if you're doing something... My philosophy is do it right. Don't do half-hearted. The same thing. Somebody told like, like I'm, I'm only protecting my organs. Like, hello, that organ is no longer the sensitive organ these days because that's the inter- ICRP came out with a new weighting factor. They told that the gonads are not as sensitive as we thought 20 years ago based on the current research. So the weightage given to the gonadal is actually gone down. 
The breast tissue on the other hand, the studies have shown, they are very sensitive radiation. So they have elevated the radiation, the weighting factor of the breast. So this person is wearing underneath means his whole chest is exposed to scatter radiation. It is as well as not wearing any apron. Yep. So it is a very in, um, um, incorrect. And I hope if they listen to this podcast, this another way, they understand Two things. One is they are not protecting themselves. Second is they are also violating the regulation in their particular region. Okay, that's really important. So the thought that, oh, if I cover my thyroid and my gonads, I'm in good shape. That's wrong. you got to cover the chest too. All right. For As you said, not only because it's safer, but because it's the regulation. Exactly. Regulation also, yes. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned before, you know, you don't want to throw lead on the ground, leave it just tossed over the back of a chair because it can, you know, crack or sure. develop holes or whatever it may be. So what does that mean exactly? Does it literally mean that the lead is cracked and that and that radiation can get through? Yeah, because imagine, this is like a fabric. Lead, that lead material inside this apron is a layer of fabric, which is like a, lead is always soft material, imprinted into the material. So you can actually stretch it, it can cre- create a crack, or it create like crumbled and all the lead can flow to one area and the other area will be just apron like a cloth material. So any of these things can happen if you do these things. And then there is a crack and so forth that can also not doing the right protection. Yeah. And so, like you said, when you see that test annually, you'll see that, right? You would see the exactly. holes. Exactly. That's right. the reason they do the testing to see there's no cracks, there's no major holes. Not a small, tiny needle holes is not a big deal. They have a criteria to do that. But crumbled and if the whole apron is one side lead and everything else is just a cloth, again, that can happen. Imagine there are three layers of apron, suit one layer and three layer of cloth are sewed together. If the sewing vents up, the lead will fall to one side if it is crumbled. And there's only cloth showing up. So you're, so. Yeah, you're exposing the whole <laughs> That would not be good. Hang in there. We'll be right back with Dr. Mahesh. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back. So do you recommend to providers then, because you never know, they may find some lead hanging outside the OR, but for all they know, that thing's cracked and crumbled. And, you know, 
is it do you recommend people buy their own or what where's the threshold for that so the thing is like usually for those who are using all the time like interventional cardiology or interventional radiology typically their area areas will give them a customized apron Mm-hmm. And they usually get it stitched or fitted up when they come for the residency start. That's what we do here, fellow. Okay. But those who are doing only one or two, there are multiple aprons there which which can be used and which can be used. So there is no need to have your own because if we, unless you, you want it, you can hear it. The second thing is sometimes um, um, uh, there is some discussion in the orthopedics uh, uh, group telling like the orthopedic surgeons, feel that especially women with large breasts feel that their breast is exposed. I understand their concern. It's very true because unfortunately, like many things, these aprons are also designed at a time only men worked. Sure. So they only have a sleeveless one. So in those type of, in, that, in those scenario, when females feel their concern, they can actually get an arm stitched to their apron, which is also led. So that will cover the, the portion uh, showing the left part of the breast. And there are some papers showing that um, uh, when the surgeons are doing for a long time, if it is empty there, if there is a large-breasted woman, their breast can be exposed to some extent. Um, even though that particular study, the amount of radiation was very minuscule, but it's a good practice. And especially if you have a doubt, you can get, actually ask the apron company to fit it an arm to this one and protect on the side you're doing. Okay, that's great. All right, so for that, people who are exposed a lot, people who have kind of special custom concerns like that, probably better to get your own. Yes. But for for a lot of anesthesiologists, honestly, we are, you know, it might be a day every few weeks that we're in an OR that might be shooting a few fluoro shots, right? It's not the same. And so for us, especially if we know that the lead is being tested every year, it's probably safe to use that. I, I recommend that because it's too much to, to responsible to carry around all the time yeah. because you're going from one operating to one operating room and you can't carry it all the time. On the other end, you can make sure that the operating area, the persons who are providing these C-arms also have a couple of aprons which are routinely tested and that you can use it better. And But you still recommend to have your own badges yeah. because that's different. Yes. Uh, but aprons, I don't think everybody has to have one. Those who are using heavily needs it preferably to have one. And those are the ones they can also have in lightweight if they're doing a lot of this production. Sounds great. All right. So when we talk about the actual equipment in the OR, C-arms, fluoroscopy, are those machines actually designed to reduce radiation exposure? So two things. One is a mobile C-arm. Typically in a room if in, a, in, a, in, a, in the U.S. or anywhere, if you are using an X-ray X-rays in a room all the time, it's called a fixed unit, you need to have a special design of the walls. There's a lead lining, we medical physicists work with the facility people to secure the walls so that anybody standing outside should not get. But for the mobile units, which can be moved anywhere, there is no requirement how the rooms are designed. And one of the take-home messages, like a, uh, there are three pillars of radiation protection. One is time, second one is distance, third one is shielding. Time is how many minimum minimize your time of exposure, you get less more protection. Further away you stand from the source, you get less protection. Like for example, if your physician is doing next to a patient and the anesthesiologist can stand and do the same thing one or two feet away, their scatter radiation dramatically decreases. And then the shielding. So with respect to CRM or anything, they are not especially designed to give any more because the scatter is coming out of the patient. It's not the X-ray tube. That's nothing. So the, depending on the patient size, the scatter can be heavy or less. And that's why we want patients, everybody to wear the apron working around it. 
Great. So does a bigger patient, like a very obese patient, provide more scatter or less? Yes. More it's, imagine uh, imagine a, uh, a, a, a soccer ball. Soccer ball, you hit the radiation through it. A lot of the X-rays going it, some of it is absorbed. And that process is called photoelectric effect. And that's what Albert Einstein got the Nobel Prize for that one. Then guys come, a guy called Compton came and explained when this X-rays get scattered, and he explained the mathematically Compton scattering, and he got a Nobel Prize. So these were, they were like 19, 20, and 30, they already got that, explained it, and they got the Nobel Prize. So, but as the body sizes increases, you need more radiation to pass through. Therefore, more scatter will come out. Gotcha. And that's also one of the reasons when we teach our fellows and residents, collimate to the area of interest. If you're only doing a spinal tap, in a, let's say, you don't need to have the whole back. Two things. One is not only you're increasing the radiation to the patient, you also increase the scatter radiation coming out. Plus, you also degrade the image quality. So all these things, and that's why we tell like understanding some of the physics behind it makes a lot of sense of what we do in our practice. Yeah. Now, you said the farther you are away, the less scatter radiation yes. you're going to get. And it degrades, is it by a power of four? It's or? one over R square. It's, it's called inverse okay. square law. Okay. And another way I, I kind of like explain is kind of trying to picture, to create a picture in the mind is, imagine you are in the cath lab, the patient lying on the table, and you're working on this. Imagine the uh, a butterfly. The body of the butterfly as the patient and the wings coming out of the butterfly as the scatter radiation. And the, the wings are thicker at the close to the body and thinner at the edges. The same principle applies now. Scatter is more at the close to the body, less at the edges. And it goes by one over R square. That's an advantage. Great. And then what about, you know, if if is it equally in all directions? In other words, let's say they're using the C-arm on the um, on the chest. You know, for us, we're usually up by the head, but we could, in theory, stand more to one side or the other. Is there a, a location around it that's better or no? So the one, whoever is standing very close to the patient, plus very close to the X-ray tube, that's when the back scatter also can come. But whether it's a chest, chest is usually much lesser because there is less air, the scatter is coming out less. So if you're sitting near the head area or the foot area, it would not make a difference. But I would rather make sure that you have a good visibility of the patient, which is convenient for you. Yeah. So that's all, that's all I would say. Okay, great. So the most important thing is if you can safely be a little farther away, great. Get. Wear your protective equipment, obviously, and then, you know, the time is going to be what it is. Yeah, but, exactly. Okay. All right, great. So is a procedure suite like IR or the cath lab different than the OR because there's more consistent fluoroscopy, more radiation? So the IR or the cath lab are fixed units. You can see that the units are fixed means they're already designed to accommodate the thickness and everything. So the wall is already lead protected. So somebody standing outside would not get any scatter. There is a limitation what we medical physicists help to design. Yeah. The OR, which it's like a it's like a transition transitory. You bring in the ORC arm, so the that room doesn't have to be shielded, but you bring, that's that's the difference. But otherwise, depending on our OR size, that is as well good as not lead because they are quite huge size. Yeah. But um, that's one of the reasons why we all working around had to wear an apron. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, again, we would never want anybody to do this, but let's say that an anesthesia provider who's only occasionally getting in rooms that have some fluoroscopy happening, let's say they just didn't wear equipment. Do we think there would be any major sequelae of that? No. It's, uh, in terms of the risk to the individual, it's almost nothing. However, we don't want to encourage that situation. At the same time, we have got complaints sometime. Somebody walk into the room. They did not stop doing the fluoro. They complain even to OSHA. 
even that is extreme end because when we do the calculation, the dose is almost nothing. Right. However, the good practice is there to wear. But if you accidentally come in, there is no jolt of radiation reaching you. One thing. Second thing is like there are no scatter radiation reaching the wall and reflecting back because these are so weak radiation, they get absorbed. Like unlike in radiation therapy, the walls can become radioactive, but here it's not the case. So if somebody accidentally walks in, we see that all often time when there is a patient getting a CT scan, somebody walks in and we have got complaint from this like, oh my God, I got a jolt of radiation. It's not actually the jolt of radiation, it's the pressure, air comes out. So in that regard, personally, it's not a it's not a significant because we all are exposed to scatter radiation, background radiation annually. If you if, imagine in the U.S., the average background radiation is about 3 millisievert per year. And in some area, it's very high. In Colorado, it's about 10 millisievert or more because of the elevation. Plus, there's a lot of uranium deposits. That's high. So, in average in the U.S. is about 3 millisievert. Let's say you do a, do a study whose dose comes out to 3 millisievert. That's almost patient is getting about one year of background radiation in addition. That's the way we try to play some perspective when we when when somebody asks me the radiation dose i always not interested in just giving out a number because if i just give out a number it doesn't make any sense sure i would try to put that in perspective yeah well so let's talk about that what sure. like a uh, if you, someone has a pan ct scan they come in trauma they get head to toe ct scan how many millisieverts is that so here's the thing so uh, there's a website called radiologyinfo.org i have been heavily involved with that there we have a whole section on safety. There we have put on a table actually, what is the radiation dose from different procedures and what is that equivalent to background radiation. A typical chest CT, a chest, we don't usually don't do a complete whole body CT. Sure. For, fortunately, that, that whole process was currently not worked through. So, so if you do a chest CT, it's about seven millisievert, approximately. We at Hopkins are even doing much lower. Okay. So seven millisievert, what does it mean? That's equal to like two and a half, two years of background radiation. Yeah. Then the patient is killing, oh my God, I'm getting a patient. The common question I get is like sometimes from the parents or from the patient is like, I brought my kid to the emergency room. They did a head CT and I'm really scared because I read somewhere that CT can cause cancer. And on top of it, I found that the CT is negative. I, I, I think that I've wasted this. My first answer is like to the mother is, you should be happy the CT is negative. Right. First, that's the first thing. Second thing is the amount of radiation you're talking about here is nothing compared to the water dose level we talk when we really are concerned. Like in uh, the numbers, we usually work around like 300, 400 millisievert, which the survivor in the Hiroshima Nagasaki experienced. Okay. And all our knowledge about radiation protection risks have come from studying that population. In fact, the world, that is one of the largest study in the world who continued to study them uh, up to now. Right now, the survivors are becoming very old. There are very few of them. They are slowly going away. But that's what we know. But at the low end where we see in imaging or fluoroscopy, there is no good data. What the, there is a principle called linear no threshold, LNT model. It was applied such that no matter how low or high, the effect is almost linear. That particular model was designed to, pro to give to protect the radiation workers so that the employers would not negate in not providing the, the protection. Unfortunately, that also got migrated towards the patient doses. So patients are now worried about even getting one CT or two CT. Our argument there is like, what is the benefit you are getting? 
you i tell the mother said you you got you brought your kid for getting a because he fell from a playground you want to rule out any internal bleeding you are worried about the chances of cancer 30 40 years ago do you want to be worried about that much and not getting the ct that's the answer right and we do not have good evidence at the low end so the normally in the medical imaging doses which we see we don't have actual data showing any radiation effect that that doesn't mean we cannot be caveat so that's where we come into picture the physician and the medical physicist trying to optimize the protocol trying to work with the research technologies to make it lower and to some extent that has happened a lot in the last 30 years great now what about a cross country flight that's also a, a exposure yeah. to radiation right so cross country flight commonly people will compare this loosely it is very difficult to tell how much it is it's usually less than a chest x ray even very very less than that but sometimes people like oh you had a head ct it's equal to like flying from here to can not necessarily let's be honest so there is actually there is way you can estimate the dose there is epa is to have a website where you can put in your flight information hmm. and they could calculate based on the elevation and on the day of the sun flare you know especially when there is a sun flare that's when it blasts some radiation okay very high in fact every 11 year cycle the whole world is very cautious at that time because they're worried the sun flare can knock off our neural network all the satellite can it knock off yeah but depending on that but these days sometime when i go on an international trip lot of the flights will go over the pole and come down the pole region can have higher radiation again it depends on the number of things but not simply like you know on this so but our argument is as long as it's medically necessary yeah. this radiation risk is very very, very low. low okay great so i remember hearing years ago from uh, i think it was a uh, somebody at another hospital i can't remember but they were talking about either trying to invent this themselves or but their idea was that they wanted to create something that would kind of go around the side of the OR table so that it would block the scatter radiation before it ever got out to the providers and they thought that might be even more effective than people wearing lead is there is that a real thing so there are two things one is um, first of all this um, in the IR table if you see there is also lead skirts which can be lined up in the so that legs cannot be covered but the one which you are talking about is like over the over table it cover it in fact there is one company right now trying to sell this system it's kind of interesting what they have done is they have flanks on the image intensifier the x-ray tube and moment you position the patient you can click it all that flanks will flow and fall across cover it it almost look like you are cooking the patient inside and uh, and it's scary because you're not even seeing the patient and i am not still bought out how much protection additional protection is provided so that i'm still keeping my fingers crossed there are variety of things have been thrown around here one is companies are trying to sell leaded gloves very thin gloves which tells like oh my god it protects your hand but there are studies shown that these gloves when anesthesiologists or surgeons wear they tend to put their hand more in the beam and that bright direct beam can have more scatter radiation to the fingers yeah we call them an emperor's gloves so at least at hapkins i don't think anybody has purchased because i've been constantly talking about it then there are other things such as the surgeons wearing a cap that the surgical cap which is again they tout the company to like there are they show some data somewhere in netherlands those guys who are doing fluoroscopy for a long time developed this brain tumor on the left hand side mm. that is again not proved universally again this is expensive but for false comfort on the other hand all of the lot of the ir rooms have a a sealed mounted shielding they can bring it and block, position it such a way it's a glass ceiling it will completely protect your head yeah 
again, we wrote a paper telling basically the protective uh, equipment PPE, some of them are really, can give a false comfort for not much protection. It's a waste of resources, but with not much of comfort. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about eyeglasses? I see some of the IR guys wear, you know, lead, lead lined, I guess, or they lead lined glasses. Is that important? So again, those who are doing a lot of procedure, like IR or cat lab, we recommend to wear, ask them to wear a lead glass. When we wear, when you ask them to wear a lead glass, we tell them, don't wear the fancy one, wear it, which is also wrapped around. Mm -hmm. And that's again limit because there is an eye limit on the annual limits allowed. And that can be estimated based on your badge report. You can estimate the mathematical, you can watch your eye is getting. Yeah. Because there has been some evidence that uh, low radiation, the scatter radiation reaching the eyeballs all the time can lead to some type of a cataract. And again, it's not conceived because um, completely secure told, but there is a concern that there is, that's why we advise anybody doing a lot of procedure to wear the lead glasses. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Anything else that you think is important for people to keep in mind or that might be coming down the pike? So a couple of things is like what's happening is like there, uh, uh, there is a, there is the regulation was there's variability about the training uh, all over the U.S. It's really not uniform training for anybody other than radiologist for anything. Instead of Maryland, we have a regulation. Like anybody who's not a board certified radiologist had to have undergo some type of a training. And every two years, some type of refresher training. We have those things at Hopkins website. Plus, I also personally give the lectures every year to the fellows because my intention is like online is fine, but it's a one-on-one is much better so that you know who to contact if you have a question more than you're ready. That's one thing. Second thing is like, Right now, there are a lot of other people are entering into the field in the sense, especially in the OR where they where they have a shortage of staff. There are always discussion can a surgeon can do or can a nurse can do the floral. Even a monkey can be trained to do it. That's not the point. But you can press the button, you can do it. But the point is like something changes. How do they know? They do not know. So there has been discussion in the hospital these days with the shortage in the OR. Can the can the MDs do it? Yes, the MDs can do because they're qualified to do it as long as they are. They take these courses, everything. But will they like to do it because they have to collimate it and everything? So ideally, we want to have a radiation technologist to do these things because they go through a year-long training to understand a lot of the variation. So that's still... Because of that, there is... Uh, I am um, on the American College of Radiology. I am on the board and plus also chair of the Physics Commission. We are going to do a blue ribbon panel uh, in the fall. And we are uh, inviting a lot of players around the medical sciences to contribute, to come up with a, a, a position statement on what type of training is required for whom and what type of regulation. We are going to put our recommendation, hoping that everybody will pick up. Joint Commission is already sending somebody. We have invited CMS. They have not, we have not heard. But a lot of the other specialty have sending out people to sit around the table to discuss what is available, what, is, what can be done. Similarly, internationally, um, you might be surprised the IAEA, which you usually hear when there's a nuclear accident happen, but half of their budget is for health, uh, radiation health. And uh, I work as a, uh, I, I, they invite me as a subject matter expert to go to the under-resourced country to train these people. 
and iaa provide the equipment provide this one they also training like in uh, underdeveloped country like under asia southeast asia or uh, sub sub saharan countries or eastern european countries and iaa also put out gu- guidelines we try to harmonize some of us play we both interact with everything so the point right now is like education and training and uh, podcast like this can really make a difference to answer a lot of the misconception and also to give the correct information Great. Well, I think it's so important that people get the correct information, and I'm glad you're doing it. So thank you so much. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd recommend the audience check out, a book, a TV show, anything you would like? I I I'm a, um, I am read a lot. I love reading it. So I also read a lot about books. So a couple of things, funny books. One is, if people have not seen the Chernobyl in HBO, I would highly recommend that. Yeah. I didn't see because I don't subscribe to HBO. But coincidentally, I did a couple of international travel at that time. Every time I travel, I should see one episode and within five saw It is well, nicely done episode. Yeah. The other one is like, actually, recently I saw, I heard a podcast on Fukushima. Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant happened in 2011. And I give lectures on a routine basis in public health on those things. And I keep a track of these things. Um, it affected a lot of people and more than the radiation exposure, the psychological impact is even now bothering to the whole. And that is a nice podcast, about eight podcasts I recently heard. The third one is like the book, regarding book, there are multiple books. This is one book which I would highly recommend. It's called Voices from Chernobyl. And this author, her name is Svetlana Alexievich. She's actually got a Nobel Prize for Literature because of her style of writing. She went and interviewed the actual workers, fire workers and their family in the ground <laughs> after Chernobyl and documented it. Wow. Two of the cases is shown in Chernobyl show. Okay. Because you remember the firefighter and his wife, the newlywed, they are from directly from it. How he saw it documentally slowed up. So this is another good book. Wow. There is another book which people don't understand, don't know. It's like, it's called Galileo's Daughter. This is, this came out a few years ago. It's a very interesting dialogue between Galileo and his daughter. Galileo was a psychologist, was an astronomer who discovered the planetary circumference. Finally, he has to pay his life that he was against the church and all those things. Only now the church came out and um, uh, acquitted him and all those things. Right. But during his days, he had one illegitimate daughter who was sent to convent and she was a nun there. So he loved her so much, he used to write letter to her all the time. And the, the daughter used to write a lot of letter to her father concerning discussion. Unfortunately, the letters Galileo wrote to her daughter was burnt because the church burnt it. Whereas all the letter which Galileo has outside is there. So the author went back to Italy, did the research and wrote a whole book collecting these things called Galileo's Daughter. Anybody would love it. It's really nice, written by a nice author. Uh, she's often done on the NPR. It's called Galileo's Daughter, which you... Because these are some of the different type of books I'm talking That's great. I love it. Galileo's Daughter. All right. That is fabulous. All right. I'm going to recommend a book I just finished called Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. It's a really interesting book. Kind of, um, I don't want to give too much away, but it has to do with a really intelligent octopus and a kind of very charming story of uh, of kind of coming of age and um, relationships. And it's it's very well done. Not not super intense. Sure, it's sure. just kind of relaxed and fun. So I'm going to recommend that. And we do have some audience random recommendations. So one of our former residents, Dr. J.R. Fan, he recommends a YouTube channel with historic from the 1930s and 40s anesthesia education videos. And uh, it's a YouTube link I will put on the show notes. 
And then there's a, another one from a CA1 at University of Washington named Matt Zemmel. Matt, I hope I got your name right there, pronounced right, Zemmel. Um, but uh, Matt says that there's a book of short stories by Ted Chiang called Stories of Your Life and Others. He says it's 10 sci-fi short stories, one of which got turned into the movie Arrival. So if you've seen that movie Arrival, about a linguist uh, who's critical to communicating with aliens that land on Earth. But he says the book is much better than the movie. And he says that experience prepares her for motherhood. So he has an incredible way, the author, of diving deep into so many aspects of these stories, various branches of science, sociology, religion. It's really incredible. Such a good read and a great audio book. So, um, and so, Matt, thank you for that recommendation. And then finally, Dominic Mangino. Again, Dominic, hope I got your name right at UCLA. Recommends I Oxygen, Creating a New Paradigm by Paul Marino. So a lot of great recommendations for all of us to check out. Dr. Mahesh, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, and thank you for hosting me. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.